Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning out there in Blog Talk Radio land. And I always like to extend greetings to our listeners who tune in from Rainbow Soul. That's where we started over at the Neil Blake on that. And I'm telling you, if you love smooth jazz, you want to get some of that Rainbow Soul, that's an online radio station. They're out of New York. But we also iTunes and just so many different ways. Uh, that people tune in to Off the Shelf uh, here live and via uh, our archives get a lot of traffic, and our traffic is going up, up, up. We've been on the air, as I was telling our guests, for over 13 years, and we've had phenomenal guests on the show. So we, we're bringing another uh, phenomenal guest uh, before you. And th- before we go on, um, I've always learned something from every single guest. We've had New York Times best-selling authors on our show. We've had Essence uh, bestsellers. We've had people who you see on TV every day on off-the-shelf radio, and we have another awesome guest on deck for you. But the the reason I say that is the guests always share things that I don't even expect that actually they can either be enlightening, educational, or enriching, or something entertaining that you walk away from you didn't expect. You don't want to miss out on that. And so there's still time for you to tell your friends, your family, book lovers everywhere, if you if you want to do them a favor, just ask them to dial in to Off the Shelf right now. And the number is 347-994-3490. Again, it's 347 347- Nine nine four three four nine zero. If I told you how much my life's been enriched just from what the guests have shared, you would never miss one episode, one show of Off the Shelf. And it's Saturdays at eleven a.m. Eastern Standard Time. There's still time, you guys. Our guest hasn't even come on deck yet. The number is three four seven nine nine four three four nine zero. You don't want to miss. Off this shelf. So, what's the next thing I want to leave with you is a thought from Lena Horn. And Lena Horn said, It's not the load that breaks you down, it's the way you carry it. That's a thought to think about as you go through your week and have your different experiences. It's not the load that breaks you down, it's the way you carry it. And, yes, you are listening to the winning book radio show, Off the Shelf. Welcome to the last the last Saturday in April, you guys. Can you believe we're headed for May? We are on our way to the middle of the year. Remember that as time just keeps on going so fast, what Lena Horne said, it's not the load that breaks you down. It's the way you carry it. And our guest today I know she has things to share through her novel writing and her, her own experiences that she implements to to help not only herself but her readers based on what she's learned in her life that she applies through her writing. So you can get ready for that. But before that, I wanted to ask you how good of a mystery sleuth are you? Are you really good at figuring things out before the author reveals it before the producer or the director. When you go to a movie, you watch a movie and you know, I know who did that. I, I know who did it. Even if it looks like they, they, they're trying to point you in the direction of maybe three people doing it, and you get it right. You get it right time after time. You read a book, a mystery novel, or you read something, whether it's sci-fi, and you can almost predict just what's going to happen. You know who did what. Are you one of those people that is a very good, like, detective when you're reading a book? I think you will love, love for Over Me. If if you like that, if that intrigues you, also, if you value relationships, not just the relationship, somebody dating or married, but you value relationships when understanding that we all influence each other, whether it's friends, your closest friends, and the influence they have on you, and especially your parents. Even when you grow up, the things they said and did shaped you in ways you may never get completely 
disengaged from. If you value those things and how we shape each other and you want to see how is it all going to turn out, especially if it changes somebody's life almost to a 180, I, you will love, love for over me. And it, it's an ebook and print copy. If you don't sit on a bookstore shelf, just ask the clerk for it. Tell them you want to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can get a copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. I really encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me today and see if how it might open your eyes to your relationships and how it might help change your life for the better. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. Who is this? Who is this phenomenal woman that we are just honored to bring before you this morning? Well, our special off-the-shelf guest today is Parker Cole. Now, Parker is a public speaker. She's a blogger. She's a romance book lover, and she's a fan of old movies. Now, books that Parker has written include, and she's written a lot of them. She, she, so some of our books, you guys, are Jabba Rift, Time to Say Goodbye, Java Blend, i got to ask her about that, The Cure, Birds of Passage, and Sins of the Flesh. And I encourage you, please visit Parker Cole, and that's P-A-R-K-E-R, Parker Cole, C-O-L-E. Visit her online at parkerjcole.com, P-A-R-K-E-R-J-C-O-L-E.com. Again, that's P-A-R. K-E-R-J-C-O-L-E dot com. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Off the Shelf, Parker. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be on the show with my girls, Miss Tate. Yes, I'm so excited to be happy with you today. <laughs> Cannot wait to just delve into Yes, yes, yes. It is it is a pleasure and a joy to have you on this morning, Parker. Before we go into the show, I just want to let you know, I ask all of our guests about the same four questions uh, leading into talking about their books or whatever their creative works are uh, that we're going to be discussing. Because listeners have told me they want to know a little bit about the guests before we launch into the questions. So before we go into finding out a little bit more about your books and your, you as an author, can you tell us, Parker, where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? I grew up in the wonderful city of Detroit, Michigan. Apparently, Detroit always has such a bad rap for being the place of a lot of violence, a lot of crime, you know. And there are places in Detroit where you would want to go down the street past 7 o'clock. There are places like that. Matter of fact, I have been uh, in certain parts of Detroit in a while. And so a couple weeks back, I was driving, and I saw one street that was completely dark. And my whole childhood instinct came up and said, don't go down there, you know. But Detroit is just on, it represents who I am. It's a, it's a city of rejuvenation. We can break down, but we always build back up again. And I always want to use the example of how Detroit uh, claimed bankruptcy. I think in 20, uh, I think 2012, 2013, they claimed bankruptcy. And here we are back on the cuffs of rejuvenation, okay? So that's the city of my birth. And the spirit of Detroit is in me, that no matter what brings me down, I will rise again. Even our slogan for our city is, from the ashes we will rise, because back in 1805, the city of Detroit had burnt down, and they said, from the ashes we will rise, from the ashes we will build again. That's our city's slogan. And so with that, I take the spirit of Detroit in me. So no matter what happens to me, no matter how bad it gets, even if I hit rock bottom, with the grace of God, I will rise again. And so that's a little bit about me and how it shaped the person that I am today. And I love my city, the Motor City. It's always moving, always have good things going on. Okay, Parker, Parker, putting in some for uh, the city of Detroit, the Motor, the Motor City. And, and one thing to learn from Detroit also, um, uh, and keeping even with the Lena Horn quote, is, Detroit, the the Ford and the auto industry, they like a lot of cities, they relied on it for a lot of years, and you said no matter what, you keep going. You have to know when it's time to shift as well because what used to be good for you 
years ago might become stagnant, and if you don't leave it, it can, it can the, the very thing that took you up, if you don't yep. let it go, it could weigh you down uh, one time. So mm-hmm. you have to, as an individual or a city organization, see it's time to shift. It's 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 time to change. We live in an ever changing world. Is it, are you an only child, Parker? You got any brothers or sisters who love Detroit along with you? Oh yeah, I am not an only child. I'm a twin. My twin sister's name is Lynette Roman. That's my twin sister. She's also a writer. Oh, okay. And then my older sister. And then my nine to five, I work with my older sister, who uh, we work together in the real estate industry. And uh, it's been wonderful having a twin sister who is my rock and my supporter. And I'm her propeller and her machine to get her going. That's my twin sister, Lynette. Uh, we recently, Lynette was recently diagnosed with ovarian cancer back in 2016. And from that, she had to have a full hysterectomy. But uh, I learned the value of relationships and how much time you have left. And it was a horrible trial for our family, but thanks be to God, she is in complete remission and she is back on her feet. And what had happened with the cancer, um, she was off work for a long time, but it forced her to really do what she loved, which is writing. And so from that horrible experience came all these wonderful stories she started to write. And so I say that because, you know, if you are a person who wants to write, if you're out there with that spark of creative genius in you and you are not using it, get to using it. You don't know how much time you have left, even if it's mm. someone in your family that you know who has that creative genius and they do not use it. You are doing a disservice to yourself and to the one who gave you that talent. And so when my sister, Lynette, when she had that, everything came to a screeching halt and the things that were really important became very clear to me, you know. Little petty stuff ceased to exist, you know. Little petty stuff doesn't matter anymore. It's that I want my sister, my darling twin sister, to be with me. And then for my older sister, she was much the rock for all three of us, and my mom and my dad, you know, we were all like needed each other, and family just became, not that it wasn't before, but it became extremely important that, you know, we don't want anything to happen to the family, you know what I mean? And so that's my family background in that regard. And thank you for for sharing that, and hopefully it will be an an encouragement to uh, one or more of our listeners. Again, thank you for for sharing that. But you made a point, and my grandfather, my grandparents were married for 60 years. They both have transitioned, but when my grandmother had a stroke, he said, he said, what you said, he said it. He said, you know, the things I used to worry about and stress out over, he said, they don't even come up. They don't even matter (laughs) <laughs> so it's almost like you do start to see what really is important in life, and we let things bother us that really are completely in, insignificant. So I encourage our listeners to to maybe look at what they what they focus on, and some things you might say, you know, that ain't even worth my time, and just let it go. Yeah. What did you mm-hmm. dream of? Be- what did you dream of becoming? We know you work in real estate now, and you're a writer. But when you were a little girl, what did you dream of becoming? I had the extreme fortune of knowing that I would always be a writer. I always knew I would write. From the earliest moment of my memory, ink was in my blood. I was always reading, but I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And I say I was fortunate because there are some people still looking for their purpose. And I have discovered my purpose and am living in my purpose. And there's no feeling like knowing that this is what you were born to do, this is what you were meant to do. And that's why it's so important to hone into what is important in your life. You know what I mean? If what's important is family, Mm -hmm. then maybe your purpose is wrapped in family. It's some way of helping people or encouraging people or enriching someone's life. If it's in fixing things, then you want to get into a purpose-filled position that's going to help you use that. Maybe you're an engineer. Maybe you're a doctor. Maybe you like to fix people's problems. Maybe you're a lawyer. It doesn't matter. But when you live in that purpose and go into that purpose, guess what? You find yourself happy where you're supposed to be. So I had the beautiful fortune of knowing that I will always be a writer, that I will love to connect with people through the language of storytelling. But I did not know that I would be a faith-based writer because I write for the Christian market. I did not know I would be a faith-based writer because I used to read all kinds of books, and I still do, but I always thought that I would never read, like, 
this, what I do now. But now that I'm in there and reading these type and writing these types of books and just being able to connect with so many people on so many different levels, it's truly, truly a blessing. So how did you, who or what inspired your um, your passion for, for writing and books? And how did you get, how did you move into becoming a Christian writer? Well, my passion comes from my family. They always encouraged it. My siblings, I have my, just not my my twin sister and my older sister, but I also have my cousins who live with us and my stepbrother, and we all lived together for a long time. But I used to tell those stories when we went to sleep. And then I will never forget when I went into middle school, my um, English teacher, her name was Miss Gregg, she gave us a list of spelling words and said, tell a story. Use these spelling words to tell a story. And I started to do that with every assignment. And it was the one assignment I always did well and I always got on time. And then we would have to read our stories aloud to the class. And everyone in my class always enjoyed my stories. And then my grandmother, who I give special acknowledgement to, she's the one who taught me how to read and write at a very early age. And so I give her special acknowledgement. And then when I used to, uh, my mother didn't want me to read Stephen King, right? And so I used to read Stephen King when I was a little girl, and I would be hiding <laughs> Stephen King and stuff like that, um, you know, rip the covers off the pages and stuff like that. And then when I got into romance, <laughs> you know, I would. I totally would rip the covers off because my mom didn't know. And then when I found romance novels, and um, we're not talking the sweet chase ones either, when I found romance novels, I was 14, and I found a book under my cousin's bed. I was like, oh, this looks like an interesting book. And I remember picking up the book, and I see some guy half, uh, half clothes on, and he's over some women. I'm like, I wonder what they're doing, you know. And I remember reading the book, and I instantly knew, like, after Chapter 2, I'm not supposed to be reading this. <laughs> so I ran upstairs, <laughs> pulled off the cover, and I'm reading, like, what on earth are they doing? And I, so I kept reading and reading, but I got into romance. And so then after that, I started to explore because I like speculative fiction, like horror, stuff like that. And then I like romance. It's a kind of, um, my first book I was going to, I wrote when I was 18. I didn't finish it until 10 years later. And my first book, when that came out, um, I had hit a low space, a low place in my life. I had lost my job, and I was on unemployment. And I was looking at this story that I had on my computer for 10 years. And I said, I'm so tired of looking at you on my computer. I want you out there in the world. I want to share you, no matter what that mm-hmm. looks like. And so my husband, um, I would never recommend it now, but my husband had given me as a gift uh, a few thousand dollars to go with a vanity press to help me get my book out there, and that's what happened. Now, I thought at the time that I had, I was the first person ever to come up with the genre of Christian horror, because that was my first book was like Christian horror. And then what happened, I found out that, no, I'm not the only one. Actually, I'm just one of a lot of people who write this genre. And so when that happened, I started to connect with other authors and stuff like that. So that's how I became into the Christian publishing industry. And then I went ahead and started to write romances, romances which have a, a, a wider range of people to reach out to because romance is a huge genre from the spicy to the very sweet. And I started to write there. So that's how my career sort of came to be. There's more to the story, but I don't know how much time we have left, and I don't want to uh, talk too much and not get to the questions you want to ask me. Okay, okay. Now, did you really start, I was re- when researching uh, mm-hmm. Parker, did you really start writing to fill a void, laughed after you stopped eating marshmallows and drinking Mountain Dew? <laughs> <laughs> well, that came... I used to always have marshmallows since I was a little kid, marshmallows. And my father, um, he doesn't do it now, obviously, but I just have memories of Daddy always drinking Loomis or Mountain Dew. And so that was always something he drank. And so you know how you carry those habits with you from childhood. And so I'll be writing, and I would get that sugar high when I wrote. And so that's what that would kind of get me writing, you know what I mean? Because sometimes ah. the chemical balance, of the Mountain Dew and the marshmallows work together to create some of the craziest stuff, you know. And for me, that was my writing uh, mojo that got me into writing. 
But now I'm trying not to because it's bad for your health. That's <laughs> so why, oh, okay. you know, sacrifice your health <laughs> or sacrifice your creativity. And even now, sometimes I, I do consider myself an on and an on and off recovering Mountain Dew and Marshmallow Addict because there are some times where I just need it. Like, I got to write this story. I need the buzz. I feel like <laughs> it's not cocaine for me. <laughs> it's just Mountain Dew and Marshmallow. It's marshmallows and, and Mountain Dew. <laughs> That's what it is for me. Okay. Now, based on your book covers, Mm -hmm. you write books with, um, it appears with multicultural romances. Is Mm -hmm. this, um, would you say it's more or less challenging to write multicultural romances with couples across cultures? Would you say it's, is it easier today or is it more challenging? I would say it's, it's not that it's challenging. You just want to have the desire to do it. There is such a huge call for diverse fiction and that someone has to answer the call and writers should answer the call. Some people do not feel comfortable writing outside their own ethnic group or their own ethnic experiences, which is okay. I'm not one to tell you what to write, but I do challenge people to write outside those, those comfort zones because you learn so much more. With the book that um, we'll be talking about a little bit later on in the broadcast, Time to Say Goodbye, I'm coming from a couple of a white guy who is, quote, unquote, trailer trash, who fought for an East Indian woman. And so I had to reach out to my Indian friends, who I'm very thankful I have so many of them, to get the flair and to get some of the knowledge about the Indian culture. Okay, and so it's not that it's a challenge unless you turn it into a challenge. If anything, I found it as an opportunity to be someone else because I'm the writer. I'm someone else now, you know. And in Trailer Trash, uh, <laughs> I had to reach out to my author friends who grew up with that background. A few of them, a few of them I know actually grew up with that background, and so I had to reach out to them for some of the uh, quote unquote redneck things they said, kind of get past the the racial things they talked about, things of that nature, which was really fun. In the book, um, Many Strange Women, uh, which is part of the Sins of the Flesh series, because I am in an interracial relationship myself, I wanted to see more of that, you know, because after a while you don't see color when you love this person. You see the person. You see the individual. And so at one time I was trying to express this to someone, and I said, well, my husband doesn't even look white. He looks clear to me. That's how I said he looks clear. And someone was like, what is he, the silver surfer? <laughs> you know, and I was like, no, I'm just saying that I don't see it. It's just, it's paint. You know what I mean? It's just paint. It's just a small right. covering. And if you peel back the veil of that person, there's so much more to that person. And so I'm a huge yeah. advocate of multicultural fiction and interracial things like of that nature. But at the same time, I encourage people to write what you're comfortable with, but also be open to writing outside of your comfort zone because you may tell a story that no one has ever heard before if you get out of your comfort zone. Okay, I was going to ask you, uh, did you research the culture? So you helped explain that question. Now let's get into, before we uh, uh, talk about time to say goodbye, can you give us a brief synopsis of your book, The Cure? How can two betrayed hearts ever be healed? And that's something that my two characters, Savannah and Micah, deal with because they had a great love for each other, but they were each betrayed by each other because of a friend who came between them. So that's what the cure is about. And so they broke apart, but she has to reach out to Micah again because her niece was injured in a horrible fire. And Micah is a... A complex wounds and burns specialist, and he comes to her aid. He comes running right to her aid, but they still have this pain that they're dealing with. And so while they're dealing with the pain of her knee suffering through these burns, they have to deal with the pain of their uh, broken relationship. And so they're wondering, is there a cure for a broken and betrayed heart? That's the synopsis of the cure. Ah, what what is Miss Savannah Woods? What is her personality like? Savannah is very nurturing. She's very beautiful, but she's also a nurturer. And she is a kind person, but that kindness sometimes can be used against her. And because of her kindness, she allowed her friend to interfere in her relationship because 
of that. And her friend kind of used that. And I'm not giving away too much anyway because you kind of picked it up in the beginning of the book. And Micah, who loves her very much, who loves this aspect of her, is like, why would you let anyone come between us? You know what type of man I am. Why would you let anyone come between us? And so she goes back and forth with wanting to not have anything to do with this man who she believes who broke her heart, but she can't forget the man that he was. And for his part, this woman was his perfect forever forever happiness, his perfect forever, you know, paradise. And he wants to move on, but he can't because he remembers what they had together. Because what I stress in The Cure is that maybe it's fairy tale life, but I do believe we can have it, is when you have a bond with someone so strong that if it's ever broken, it'll break you a little bit. You know, so that's kind of what happened to them. But everything that can be broken can be fixed. And if you scar, you can be healed. And there is a cure for many things we have in life. We just have to find out what that cure is. And so the cure is that's what, what put, can cure a broken heart. Uh, who who so Savannah without giving too much of the story away, yeah. the uh-huh. friend comes between them. Uh, uh-huh. is, is it too much to ask? Is does somebody step outside of the relationship? Oh no, nothing like that. I didn't want to do that. I, I honestly think that's been done many, 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 many times. <laughs> I think that's been done many times. But it's nothing like that. But what the friend did was attack Micah's professional integrity. Okay, that's what she did. She attacked his professional integrity, which was risking his career. And so she sided with her friend in this, and that's what uh, broke them up. He said, she, but you know, if she knew. It's, okay, when I, when I do these off-the-shelf interviews, sometimes you say, okay, the book, you hear the synopsis, and then as you dive into the questions, the book becomes even that much more intriguing. So there it sounds like you're saying they're meant to be together, uh, Savannah and Micah. Why mm-hmm. then would, what would happen? You know this person, they either, she either really didn't know him. Why would you take a, a friend's, it's almost like the, the bond between the friend and Savannah was, thicker or closer than with Micah. Is that the case? Why would she take uh, the friend's word over his? Micah performed a service for her friend in a professional capacity, and that service was botched. And so when that service was botched, it ended the friend's career. And so instead of the friend is saying, no, he did not take responsibility for what he did, he said, no, I did everything correctly. I don't know what happened after I took care of it. So he provided a service to the friend, and the friend, um, it was botched, and then she blamed him for it. And because her friend has a very worldwide um, presence, it began to attack Micah. And so that's what happened. And so it almost ended his career, you know. And then something happened where it didn't end his career, but it broke up Savannah and Micah because she said, you did this to my friend. He said, no, I did not. She said, it's undeniable. He said, it's not. I know exactly what I did. I'm a competent surgeon. There's nothing I did to her that she should have ended up like this. And so that's kind of like what drove them apart because she said, I'm looking at the result of your botched surgery on her. And he's like, no, you're not, you see. So that's kind of what happened. Wow. Now you took a really interesting twist uh, with that. Do, do mm-hmm. in the cure – uh, and this wasn't a question I meant to ask you, but sure. as this all unravels, the whole thing unravels, is there, though, are there things, because when you get pressed, you some of us, some things come out of us that may not have come out if we weren't pressed so hard, but the Savannah, uh, are there things she learns about herself and Micah that had this not happened, they never would have known it would have been hidden? And does Micah learn things about Savannah and himself that had this experience not happen. And these might be things they like about themselves and don't like, but it would have never come to the surface had this event not happened. Well, Savannah thanks her friend for getting her into becoming a a supermodel. She became a supermodel, and she thanked her friend for it. But over time, when she and Micah broke up, she began to binge eat. 
And so she gained like 20 pounds, which is a no-no for a supermodel. And she wanted to kind of leave the industry anyway because modeling in and of itself can play mind games with you. Now, it's getting better because people are starting to see beauty in a different light. It's not just one style of beauty. They're starting to see all types of beauty being represented by different things. So it's getting better. But for her, she was um, not happy being a model, but her friend had pushed her into being a model because she had those looks. For Micah, he didn't like the fact that this modeling career was changing the woman that he found perfect. And as a plastic surgeon who also um, specializes in complex wounds and burns, he found her perfect. She's perfect just the way she is. And so it wasn't that they discovered anything about themselves that they didn't know. It was the fact that they knew they were meant to be together, but this friend was the one who drove them apart. And so he discovers that even though he believes the friend was wrong, he should have listened to Savannah and taking her concerns very validly. For herself, she should have gotten more information about what had happened instead of just siding with her friend just based off what she saw because everything you see is not always true. There's always things behind the scenes that you need to be aware of. And so they both needed mm-hmm. to learn more about what's going on besides the front of the picture. Okay. Now is is now the time time to say goodbye. It's time to say goodbye. Is this part of a book series, Parker, or is this a standalone? It's a standalone, but part of a series I'm calling Michigan Sweet. And the reason why it's part of the series is that I'm highlighting small towns in Michigan that may not have a lot of notoriety. Like we know about small towns in Texas and small towns in uh, Georgia, stuff like that. A lot of romances have that. But you don't hear about a lot of small towns in Michigan. And Michigan is an unexplored treasure of small towns in that small town feel. Because we're surrounded by the Great Lakes, we have some of the prettiest scenery up here, especially when you go further up north, what we call up north, which is the UP, the Upper Peninsula. There's some beautiful scenery there, lots of small um, little treasure troves, a little haunting places and um, things of that nature. So there's a lot of beauty here in Michigan that I want to tap into. And I did not know that there was a need for this type of fiction. I was just saying, you know, I want to represent my state, so I'm going to talk about Michigan through these sweet love stories and get that small um, small town feel. And so these first two novels take place in a town called Talos. And I got the information from two of my coworkers who live in the small town. And then the next book in the series um, that I'm currently working on right now is going to take place in this town and then another town and the next book is going to explore that town, you know, because I want to hit these small towns in Michigan. So it's part of a series, but they're all standalone, and they just make references to the other uh, characters in the other stories. You love your home state of Michigan. Go, Michigan. Yeah. Good yeah. for you. Good for you. A lot of people do love their home, their hometown, mm-hmm. so that, that's, a, that's a good thing. Now, in the book, uh, Time to Say Goodbye, is it Time to Say Goodbye?, why is mm-hmm. Dev, why is he incarcerated? Dev is incarcerated on the charges of wires and securities fraud. And so he ran an uh, investment firm, and he is accused of stealing investor funds of about $14 million. Whoa. And he was convicted wow. on that charge. How long, had mm-hmm. he, how long had he been running his business before he, he, got, he was put in jail? He had been running his business for about four years. And now that you think about it, yeah, about four years. I've run his business for about four years. But during that time, it gets kind of murky about some of the things that were happening. So that's why um, these things started to happen. Then he was, you know, falsely accused of wires and securities fraud. So um, that's how his incarceration takes place. Okay, tell, please tell our off the shelf listeners how old is Deb? And what what is he like? Give us a little backstory on him. Is he married? Is he single? And uh, had this been his passion to go into financial services for years? What's he well, like? Deb, well, Deb was you know, he's a uh, Indian man who's very handsome. He's very outgoing, and he loves to connect with people. He got into finance because he wanted to help people learn how to control their money and learn how to take care of their money so they could build a legacy for their children to move on. And so that's why he got into the financial industry. And the fact that he had that charisma that people were automatically drawn to. In the book, it's referenced that he was one of Detroit's 
elite uh, financial businessman, and he has what they call the best eyes in Detroit because he has these really sexy bedroom eyes that the women of high society in Detroit just swoon over, you know. So he's very handsome, very outgoing, and he knows how to charm people. And so that is one of his assets is that. And so he, and so that's what his character is about. Okay. Now is God, I hope I'm saying his name right, Gargi Kapoor, is mm-hmm. Gargi naive or does she simply refuse to believe that her brother stole money simply because he's her brother? No, she's. Not, I don't believe she's naive at all. She's not naive. She's extremely loyal to her family, like we all should be in some way, depending on the circumstances. And we know there are times where sometimes you have to run away from people. But she is not naive. She's very loyal to her family. She does not believe that her brother has stolen anyone's money. She used to work with him. She knows her brother. She grew up with her brother, especially when their mom died. She kind of became. She kind of became like the mother figure for them. But not in an a overarching sense. You know, she just wants to take care of him and make sure he's okay. So she's not naive. She just loves her brother. She knows that her brother did not steal any money from anyone. Matter of fact, these people lied on her brother. These people lied. And they made up things and they pulled things around because she knows what her brother has told her. And she knows her brother will never do anything like that. Okay, so so there's a lot going on in this book and a lot of stuff that uh, – you know, a reader reading through it might say, God, it's a little shady things going on. For example, is mm-hmm. Leon, how how was Leon Reckley allowed to be assigned as Dev's therapist? Did he, did he do some behind the scenes, strings pulling to get that assignment? Well, no, not at all. What had happened is that um, there's always intrigue. And so what had happened is that the state was in trouble. The, the state of Michigan is in trouble because one of their prisoners had died from the lack of medical care in the prison. And so they don't want any more bad publicity. And so Leon, who works for a um, health care um, center that provides long-term acute care for people, they want a contact with the state. And so the owner of the company came to him and said, hey, look, this is what's going to happen. <clears throat> they don't need any more black publicity. We're going to take care of it, and you're going to take care of this guy who's a prisoner who needs uh, acute care for his condition. And so that's how he got assigned to it. Now, Leon could have easily have said, you know, hey, I don't need this. I'm too close to it, whatever. But he remembered that he had met Gargi, and for some reason he didn't say anything. He said, okay, I'll take the case. So that's kind of like how that starts off with them two. Okay. So is Leon, um, so he's not, I was going to ask you, is he a hard guy? And should Gargi trust him? I don't want to give too much of the story away, but how people, when you see people, like good authors are told, whether you're writing a movie script or a book, you don't introduce a character who's not going to have some some key role. Now, maybe not a key, but they play some role in the outcome of the of the story. So this Mr. Leon, he shows up, and he's assigned as Dev's therapist. Is he like, is Leon a hard guy? And should Gargi trust him? Gargi, he's not a hard man, but he is very bitter because he believes that Dev stole his mother's life savings, okay? So he's very bitter about what this man is doing. And then the fact that this man has a condition that is causing him to to be in suffering is a good thing for Dev. So he's very bitter. He's glad that this man is having issues. And Gargi knows that she can't Mm. trust him. But she knows she can't trust him because he believes her brother stole his mother's money. And she said, my brother would never do anything like that. Leon said, yes, he did. And so Dev has had this physical condition that they both need to see to. And he said, there is no one more motivated than me to make sure he gets well to send him back into prison. So that is the start of their Uh. their relationship is that. See, their their motives are... Mm-hmm. I was watching a show last night on 2020 on OWN, the Oprah Winfrey Network, a real-life story. This guy wanted to take a guy down, again, a true-life story, kind of like mm-hmm. what's happening in your book a little. He wanted to take this guy down, so he goes to court, and he does help take the guy down. They did some horrific things. But the other guy was also doing some crooked stuff, so as he's coming out of the courtroom, 
the FBI arrest him. And I'm like, mm. listening to, like, Lee, Leon wants to take care of Deb because he wants, man, I want you to live to get yours. You're going to pay. How does that motive, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe later on actually come back come back uh, to haunt you. But I wanted to know, and I'm sure our off-the-shelf listeners would also like to know, so Leon is, you know, he's not really, his, his motives aren't as clear with Dev as maybe Dev would think, but how did Gargi and Leon get to know each other? Well, they knew each other because of her brother. They are connected by their brother's uh, health condition because, as you find out in the beginning of the book, he's sick. Um, toward the beginning of the book, you find that she goes to visit him in prison, and he's sick, and he passes out in front of her. And she's like, what's going on? And so he is actually, when they remove him to the hospital, he's actually there visiting his mom. I'm sorry, Leon is there visiting his mom because his mom is having hip replacement surgery. And so they happen to be in the same hospital. And um, she's, he, she's walking by to emergency. He kind of sees her. He's like, wow, she looks familiar. And then he looks at her and he goes, wait a minute, who is that? You know, how do I know her? And then he remembers that he saw her on TV because she was the sister of the man who stole his mother's money. Uh, and so that's how they wow. meet. And so, yeah, and he has a confrontation with her at the hospital. He has this confrontation with her, and they, like, instantly sparks are flying. They're very mad at each other, and he kind of berates her, and she's like, you know, get out of here and stuff like that. And so that's how they meet is when through their brother, her brother, who's having this condition. Okay. Now, have you, I have to ask you for where you got the, it's time to say goodbye, knowing when it's time to say goodbye, even if in the story the the uh, the couple stay, the people stay together, uh, have you, the basis for what inspired you? Some authors come on our show and they, there's a personal experience that inspired them to write a story. Have you ever struggled to let a relationship go that you really knew it's time to say goodbye, and if so, what kept you holding on? I'm thinking about T.D. Jakes. He said, God bless the goodbye. It wasn't the catalyst for this story, um, but I have been in a situation where I've had to let go of friendships, and the, it hurt me when I had to let go of one particular oh. friendship, one and a half for 20 years, and we have been friends for oh. a very long time. And um, long story short, some things that happened. And when I realized that the friendship I thought we had did not exist on the same level oh. as, as that, it literally, the word, the term is a broken heart. And I say that we're used to seeing it in an allegorical context. But I actually discovered from a mental health professional who I was just kind of just talking about it, because, uh, talking about it on one of my Facebook groups, and he was a mental, he's a mental health professional. He said, I said, I can't hardly breathe. Like, I'm having a hard time breathing for like three days. I had a hard time breathing. And there was a curious ache in my chest. It was a physical sensation that it didn't hurt, but it was so present there. And I remember having a hard time sleeping, and I couldn't, I couldn't swallow. I couldn't, those things that happened, this physical manifestations, the things I did not understand what was wrong with me. I had been crying, yes. But my tears had gone, but why was I still feeling this way three days later? And so I kind of put it out there, and he said, you know what, Parker, it sounds like you have had a very emotional, traumatic experience. He said, you sound like you have a broken heart. And I had never until that moment taken it literally that an emotional trauma can cause physical manifestation. I had never experienced that before. And it really hurt, and it took well a very good friend of mine to kind of kind of get me out of there. It took over a year to get over it because these are relationships that you mm. that you put a lot of time and effort into, and to discover that what you thought you had never existed with the, wow. someone who's supposed to be a very dear wow. friend, it can break your heart. But either you linger on it, or you have to learn to say goodbye. And like you said, Jake said, you know, you know, God bless the goodbyes because sometimes those goodbyes lead to better hellos. You know. And I understand that, but the mourning of that relationship, the mourning of what you thought you had, that sorrow is very real, and that's why you have to learn to say goodbye. Sometimes it's going to take a long time to do that, though, because you you don't want to let go of something that's been a comfort to you for so long. You don't want to let go of that. 
But there are times when in order to move forward, you have to say goodbye. And that's kind of like um, what I've experienced personally in my life when it says time to say goodbye. In this context of the story, though, he's only there for a season. He's only there for a moment to help get our brother better. And then as they get to know each other, we'll eventually – she have to stay. Will he stay or will it be time to say goodbye? So that's kind of like where that came from. Wow. You know what? And that's, I mean, that is a universal, timeless thing. Are there signs for our listeners, um, not just in dealing with the novel, it's time to say goodbye, but in people's real lives, you talked about your friendship. And every day, you know, we say goodbye. A million people exit their bodies every single day, I'm told. People come into this world, they go out of this world. We have job loss, you said you had experienced, and I've gone through that as well. But you mm-hmm. just it is a part of life. But when yeah. it comes to relationship, when a relationship, when a relationship has become like water that is no longer moving and it's going to become stagnant and start to, to stink, it's just not going to be good anymore. Are there mm-hmm. signs that you've observed that it is time to call it quits? Yeah, there is. You know, one of the things that happen with relationships is that as they stagnate, you start to get more and more emotionally distant from them. People often, and I got this from another author friend of mine, her name is Inamana Wankar. Um, she said, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Because indifference means you no longer care. Nothing they do can hurt you. Nothing they can say can hurt you. If they fell down and broke their necks, you'd be like, oh, sorry for you. Not really, you know. So those are if you start to feel yourself becoming emotionally distant, if time with that person is not a high priority on your list for you, if you start to feel as if you know they haven't I haven't called them or I haven't been called in a while, they're not checking up on me. Even like once we're not talking about people having life, you know, just life interfering. We're not talking about that, and then you never hear from. Them. We're talking about people who just constantly don't have time for you, don't want to talk to you, um, don't want to spend time with you. Or if they do spend time with you, it's very regulated. I only got like five minutes. I only got like six minutes. Seriously, you know. You get those uh, people, yes. you know, yes. And you start to see that they no longer respect you or your opinion doesn't have any weight, you know. you know, it's some, Even physicality, physicality gets limited, things of that nature. You start to see these signs and you start to know, okay, do I want to stay in this stale water, as you so eloquently put it. And I was thinking about when, um, when growing up in Detroit, when my house that we grew up in was like 100 years old, so we had an old plumbing system. And goodness knows when the plumbing system backed up, it was a horrific event, okay, Ooh. horrific event. In the basement, always back in the basement. And we all have to all go down there, clean the basement, because you can't leave that food hanging there. You can't leave it hanging there, right? It's not to go. I mean, we're not talking, you don't, it has to go like right away. You don't let it linger for days and days and days because you're sick, you'll get sick and cause other kind of issues. And so that's kind of like how you know, you know, that's kind of like you know that there's crud in the basement you got to get rid of and you got to get it going. So that is those are the signs that I've learned. Over the years, mm-hmm. and I appreciate you sharing those because they might help somebody. And then I think about we've had people on who've been in domestic violence relationships, mm-hmm. and they stay for years. And it's there, there are just times when you you and people will know it's time to go, but they keep trying to make it work. I don't know why we mm-hmm. hold on to things too long. I, I can't. I think that's where a lot of human pain and suffering comes from actually is holding on to things that you really should let go of and and it's like we don't want to let go <laughs> yeah it's the unknown the unknown go. is frightening the unknown is frightening because you know you know how like some people won't they're like i like what i like right you know what you want to eat you know i like steak and potatoes if I don't eat steak and potatoes and get something new and it's a horrible experience, I'd be mad because I could have just had a good experience with my steak and potatoes. You know what I mean? I think the unknown frightens some people because I don't. I know what this is. This may be crazy, but I'm used to crazy. I like this crazy. What if I got into another situation and it's not crazy and, and it's crazier than what I already have? At least I can handle this crazy. You know what I mean? And sometimes people are just scared mm-hmm. of that unknown. They're scared to. That's why some people who have that gift to write, they won't write because they may find out something they didn't know about themselves. You know, but when you take a chance in the unknown, you may get hurt. You may not get hurt. 
but if you don't take a chance, you'll never know. and You'll never know what could have happened. You know, I think about uh, a young man, and uh, I'm also a podcaster too, Denise, but I uh, had a young man on my show once, and he was 16. And he, his name is Tyreek Wynn, and he said, you know, you are never too young to begin your dream. And he was 16 years old saying this. And I've been following him online. He started a TV show as a journalist. He's probably 18 or 19 now. And he just got an internship at Turner Broadcasting Company, okay? And I'm looking at him, watching him fulfill his dream. And I'm looking, but see, if he didn't, if someone had said, no, you have to go straight to school, you have to do this, you have to do that, how would he know what to do? And he was 16 when he told me that, 16 when he told me that, okay? And so Mm -hmm. the unknown is frightening, yes, but what are you going to do if you don't take that leap? If you never take the leap, you will never know what could have (laughs) happened. Exactly, and then yeah, yeah, and then you reach the end of the road here, and you're like, oh my God, I wish I had done this mm-hmm. or that or this or that. Now, how soon to your books? Um, as we come down to the last ten minutes of today's show, Parker, how soon after you finished Time to Say Goodbye did you sit down and start writing The Other Man? Well, The Other Man actually came before Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, the Other Man was the <laughs> second book in the Think of the Flesh series, and The Other Man. Um, uh, that was that book is very ups and downs. People who've read it, they go, "You have had every single emotion you could possibly have in this book." And I was my characters in that book is from a family because the family I created is called uh, the Martins, the Westwoods, and the Westwoods. You know, through marriage, they, you know, they become family through marriage. And so my main character in that book, her name is Leah, and it's kind of a play. Kind of, not quite though. It's kind of a play off the biblical story of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. It's kind of a play off of that story, but not quite. It's not quite that. I'm not, you know, it's not quite that, but I do kind of play around with those uh, names from the biblical story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel called the other man. Do you think, does somebody have to be, when you think about your novels, uh, some people are turned off when they hear the word Christian. Romance, mm-hmm. or or because they think that it's very maybe sterile. Um, mm-hmm. Your your reader base, would you say that somebody has to be a Christian to enjoy your books, or oh, gosh, would you say no. that's not no. the case? That's not the case. Oh my gosh, you you have, Christian fiction is so is so wide, very people have no idea. I have Christian. I'm actually there's a book I read recently. It has sex, violence, cussing, all that in it. And it's one of the best Christian books I've ever read. And some people are like, how can I be a Christian book? But it is, you know. And I'm an advocate of what I call edgy or real Christian fiction. I believe in showing all the warts of of people. I believe in showing that, you know, if you want to be a Christian, this thing is not, oh, be just good. You're dealing with people who are flawed. And in my book, I was, I was my one book was actually called Christian Erotica, and I was like, you have got to be kidding me. There's not a sex scene in the book. But because I do have that kind of spicy, spiciness to it, and I'm kind of blunt about the romantic and sexual tension between my characters, some people felt that was too much for a Christian story. And I'm like, but that's what life is. I mean, babies don't burp rainbows, you know what I mean? And, you know, we're not hatched from some egg somewhere, you know. It's done through through sex. And let's stop making it so mystique about it, you know. And I'm a huge advocate of that. So, no, you do not have to be a Christian to read the story. I just like to let people know that there are Christian elements in there. I don't want to, you know, mislead people. That's the biggest thing. I said I don't want to mislead people thinking, oh, this is not what you thought. You know, I don't want to mislead. Because people have done that. If you've been there, people have done it, they mislead you. And I was kind of like, yeah, there are Christian elements in this story. But I don't think you have to be a Christian to read it. Now, let me ask you this. Do you feel pressure <laughs> Uh, as a writer, as we talk more um, now at the closing about want to get into a little bit of book marketing, but then also how you create a story as a writer, do you feel any pressure uh, that you say, okay, I'm a Christian, These are, some Christians have, you know, this is the way you should live your life and you shouldn't really be promoting or making stories, uh, certain types of stories. Do you feel any pressure when you are writing or editing your work to say, you know what, I better take that out or let me not uh, uh, deal with that? Is is there any pressure? I'm not saying you get into it, but does it mm-hmm. rise up in you when you're creating as a as a writer? Well, you know what, um, it used to. But then what I realized is that there are readers for everything. 
And so, like, for this sweet Michigan sweet romance, I'm reaching the readers who want nice, wholesome stories with not a lot of um, pressure to them. You know, they don't want a lot of explicitness. They want a good story, a good love story, but they don't want it to be very graphic or very explicit, like my other one, Sisters of the Flesh, which is more graphic. Nothing, nothing. again, nothing explicit, but just a little more romantic tension. I, I do a behind and close scenes, doors, two love scenes and stuff like that. But um, um, they want to, you know, keep it very um, chaste and wholesome. So I actually am writing toward that sect of people who like that. And with my other series, I write more to people who who don't mind that. And so there used to be that pressure, well, maybe I should take this out. But then I realized, you know what, I'll just write for those people who want that type of story. I'll write for that. And for these people who ah, like this type interesting. of story, I'll like that. You see? Yeah. Because okay. I'm actually, like, Java Blend, is for example, Java. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead. Oh, like, for example, Java Blend is not a Christian story. Yeah, Java Blend is not a Christian story. It's a contemporary romance, you know. And, um, I mean, there's, like, the the, the one of the characters are missionaries, but that's about it. You know, it's not really about that, but it doesn't go crazy. You know what I'm saying? So I'm writing for people who they just want to, they don't want any kind of religious aspect, and they just want a good story, and I write to that sect too, you know. I used to didn't do that, but as I've gotten into this writing thing, I'm like, you know, reach the readers who are out there. Try to reach the readers who are out there, you know. Can you share three to four steps, action steps that you've taken? I know you said you also have a podcast, and if you can tell us the name mm-hmm. of your podcast and mm-hmm. when, it, when, it, when it also comes on so our listeners who, who are interested can catch your podcast as well. But can you share three mm-hmm. to four steps that you take that you've, been, you've found to be effective personally at getting the word out about your books? Well, I network with other authors who are in the same genre and outside the same genre as I am. That's one thing. Second thing, I've been utilizing uh, email lists recently. So like BookBub, if you can get on their list, which is extremely difficult. But you can also use like Free Booksy, um, Bargain Booksy, things of that nature to get on those emailing lists because people are always looking for free or bargain books, and they tend to have thousands of subscribers that you pay a fee for so they can put into their mail. Um, another thing I use is heavily used social media groups. And then the last thing I would use is make sure you develop a tribe of followers. So develop your own ARC and readers group because these people who enjoy your work already will continue to support your work. They'll say, oh, my gosh, you got to read Parker's next book. Um, those things help to cement your relationship with your readers and also help you get out new readers as well. Oh, oh, okay. I wanted to ask you next, are you working on anything new? I know you've got your Java book Series, are you working mm-hmm. on any new books? And if so, can you give our listeners a glimpse into what you're working on? Well, I'm actually on three projects right now because I'm insane. But I'm actually wow. working on three. three of them. Yeah, because like I said, I'm insane. I'm working on uh, the next in the Michigan Suite series called The Element of You. And as you were talking about multicultural characters, these characters are Asian. And so I'm working with Asian characters, reaching out to my Korean, Japanese, and Chinese friends to help me out with that. And then um, I'm working on the second of my fantasy series, which I've written under a pen name called Parker Payne, to honor my granny. Um, that second book is called Druid's Moon. The first book is called Druid's Fear. I'm working on the second book to that series. And then I'm also working on a uh, sci-fi, a sci-fi, military sci-fi book, uh, which is very much out of my comfort zone. I've been working on it for a while now, but it's very much out of my comfort zone, and it's called uh, Persephone's Culling. And I'm working on that, and so hopefully that should be done this year too. So, working on several projects, and then I'm also—I'm sorry, four projects—and I'm also working on a historical romance uh, from, a, if you like, sweet historical books, which I've never written before. I'm working on that, and that one it should be coming out June 19th as part of a, a multi-author series called Silver Pines. Are you doing this? Are you writing on all these books at the same time? Because you just have what I, all these creative yeah, what ideas popping up. Mm-hmm. What I do, I try to work on um, one at a time. But every once in a while, sometimes an idea will pop in that book and I'll put that on there. So they're all con- concurrent. But am I working them all at the same time every single day? No. But they're all concurrent. And so my goal is to get, like, one out this month, the one out in June, the one out in September. You know what I mean? So I do have, like, deadlines for them. So, yeah. Wow, man, I'm you insane, are really though. pumping I'm those insane. books out. Where can, where can, where can off-the-shelf listeners get a copy of your currently published books, Parker? They can go to Amazon.com or go to my website, ParkerJCole.com. 
And can you tell us where we can find you on? You mentioned social media. Can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where they can find you on the social media networks? I am very heavy on my Facebook group. You can friend me on my Parker J. Cole group, on my Parker J. Cole Facebook. And uh, also you can join my readers group called Parker's Boldacious Readers on Facebook. Okay. You know what, that email list, I want to just – that idea you had, that's for anybody mm-hmm. in any form of business, major businesses mm-hmm. have them. you got to have a yeah. list where you can get in touch with people. I, mm-hmm. I, I really encourage you. I mean, multi-billion, billion-dollar companies have these, um, their own. They don't just rely on the social media networks. Because exactly. if it shuts yep. you down, then, you, then you, don't, you can't connect with those people. But have your own mailing list, some way to get in contact with your current or and prospective or potential readers. Well, we have come to the end of today's Off the Shelf show, and we want to thank Parker J. Cole for being here with us this morning. And if you came in late or midway, no worries. When the show finishes streaming, you can go back and listen to it in its entirety in the archives. But Parker J. Cole, some of the books he's written, you guys, uh, she's written that Java series, Java Rift, Time to Say Goodbye, Java Blend, The Cure, Birds of Passage, and Sins of the Flesh. And we only talked about a few of her books, so I encourage you to visit her online. You can get the full slate of the books she is currently published. And her website, again, is Parker J. Cole, P-A-R-K-E-R-J. C-O-L-E dot com. So we want to thank Parker J. Cole for being here with us. She is a lady on the move. She's working on four books right now. So look for her her next books. When they do come out again, keep up with her. At, you can just bookmark her website, ParkerJCole.com. Uh, we want to thank each of our off-the-shelf listeners for being here with us today. And remember just to set it on your calendar Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City time, you're going to bless yourself by tuning in to Off the Shelf. And as I always tell you, remember, you are amazing. You are fabulous. You're awesome. It's gorgeous here in Georgia, you guys. Go out and create an awesome day for yourself. Parker, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. <laughs>